Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hey, this is Derek Carr, founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another great guest today to talk about their career path and things that they care about in OT and ICS related cyber. I've got Ken Monroe coming to us uh, from across the pond. And in fact, I love that he lives near Bletchley Park. That's such a nice tie in with, uh, you know, with encryption and, and, and the security in its early, you know, early form and early years. If you don't know Ken, he is uh, he's a partner and co-founder of Pentest Partners, but he's also a technologist in general and a founder uh, of, of multiple things and a pilot and a skier and uh, an all-around adventurous uh, contributor to our uh, to our community. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, and uh, I know we're going to talk aviation. And if, if somebody you know is not seeing the video of this, which most podcast listeners will not have the benefit of seeing you, they won't see the aviation-related things in your background. And this is a theme I know is going to come up uh, come up today. Uh, but let's go back in time to you know to where you where you grew up. Where where are you from? Me, so, so I'm, uh, I grew up in Oxford in England, so the University City of Dreamy Spires, which I, I still live quite close to. Very proud Oxfordian, uh, spent most of my childhood there. But now I live, I live a little bit further away. Um, I live, as you said, quite close to Bletchley Park, which is about 10 miles to my east. But um, I actually live on the railway line that connected Oxford and its university with Bletchley Park and then Cambridge University. So it was located there because Bletchley Park's at the intersection of the train line to two great universities, but also the north-south telephone trunks. So that's why it was there. And it's part of the reason I live so close by. That is on my list of places to visit. I've, I have studied some of the preservation work that's going on there. And I've seen, you know, read, read some things on the web, but I haven't personally gotten to to, to go see it yet, but I, I would like to. Yeah, I was I was um, quite lucky. So I first went there in, in the mid nineties before before it attracted a lot of external investments. And uh, I'll be honest with you, bits were falling apart. It was just on just turning a corner, and then uh, a couple of big U.S. cybersecurity organizations put a bunch of funding in, and now it is absolutely incredible. I love the place. We use it for events. We host TV shows there. Um, but my favorite thing by miles is is the uh, is the rebuild of the Colossus computer. So valves cracking cryptography. I love it. Amazing. And the 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 um, I don't know is it Bomb or Bomba? I don't forget how that's pronounced. None of them none of them were saved. They had to re sort of rebuild one. Well, thought of. So it's the it's I think it's from the Polish word bomber, but actually it became anglicised into bomb. Uh, so one of the sad things uh, for the for the British computer industry is all of the technology that was in Bletchley Park was either destroyed or shipped off down to um, our, our military intelligence in in Cheltenham, and it all went into uh, very dark secret places, and it, we lost an opportunity to to lead the world in 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 commercial IT back in the late 40s and early 50s, but. A, a bunch of very passionate people rebuilt Colossus, for example, from a couple of photographs. Yeah, I love it. That is so super cool. 
Well, so let's let's talk about when technology intersects with your, you know, your young life. Uh, you know, are you an early enthusiast or did it come, you know, in, in further later and during education? You know, when is that story? Yeah, so my story is one of failure, which I'm very proud of. Uh, I, I'm a physicist by learning. I studied uh, applied physics at yeah. university. Yeah, I know. Uh, and during that time, I got into a lot of coding. So I used to develop in C++ back in the day. Um, but frankly, um, I might not have taken my studies too seriously. So my university career ended, um, ended in uh, expulsion for a story that I won't tell. But that's mostly for not doing enough work. <laughs> But I found my way into hotels and catering. It was the mid-90s. There was a recession going on over here. Uh, so it wasn't a great time to be looking for work without a, uh, a degree. Uh, but I found my way. Um, I ended up uh, running hotel restaurants. And uh, I was fascinated. But we had a really early point-of-sale system. Really interesting. And, of course, you know, the, the inquisitive me is playing around with this pause and discovered I could crash it out to DOS. And I could start running my mortgage amortizations on it and print it up on, on, the, on the, the restaurant check. And then my boss came along, saw what I'd done, and said, I think your career lies elsewhere as he fired me. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a researcher, an early researcher. <laughs> yeah. I know, it was, it was awkward. I was, I was very lucky. So one of the hotel's big customers was uh, an antivirus vendor called Dr. Solomon's. Uh, they're very famous in the UK and Europe. Not quite so well known in the USA, but um, they were a wonderful company. Really good tech. Where was Dr. Solomon's out of? I remember that brand. Yeah. So um, they were in my local town, uh, okay. run by the amazing Alan Solomon himself, who wrote one of the very first antivirus programs. Uh, we had an amazing team of people there, drew it. And then um, McAfee came along. They needed to upgrade their technology. So they acquired the firm. And things kind of changed after that, which is a shame. But, um, hey, you know, it's progress, right? Often the case, but that's so you're there. You're in the thick of it there, um, and that's interesting. It was, I mean, that company was in your hometown or where you were living at the time. Uh, that's the amazing nexus. And then from then on, you, you, you if I'm understanding right, did that your journey stays in this area? Yeah, and what, what I still love actually is um, there's still a lot of um, friends I made at Dr. Solomon's. And it's this kind of little niche corner of uh, of North Buckinghamshire. Just on the corner of Oxfordshire, and uh, there's still lots of cybersecurity professionals around here, which is it's really odd. It's it's, it's a tiny enclave of uh, yeah. you know, I've got I've got friends from in cybersecurity from this village and that village by a mile and that village by a mile. It's quite odd. Yeah, that's uh, I love that. Uh, it's the alumni of, of of those ventures too. I mean, my first company I started in '97, and I I bump into people still at, at conferences who I haven't talked to in years, but they. They graduated from that company to other companies and have stayed in the industry the whole the whole time. And some of them, it was their first time in cybersecurity from the military or from other places, and they stayed in the industry, you know, ever, ever since. And it's been been a lot of years. That's a cool thing to run into those folks. Yeah, I'm sure you you probably have it too. Is that you know, back in the 90s, I think people in cybersecurity either came from the military or they kind of found their way in from the outside. It was a 50-50 split back in the day, I think. Was, yeah. Is that what you saw in the USA? Yeah, always heavy. I, I, that was my background. I started the company as I was leaving the Navy. Um, the co-founders were Navy. Uh, we, we recruited a bunch of people from Navy and DOD in general. Uh, at one point, we had 337 combined years. It was on a slide. That's how I remember it. Because we, we told people that, especially investors were like, the brain trust here has got 337 years of DOD and government experience. So, yeah, and there was a lot of that, that that's the case. And even today, it seems like there's a lot of, of veterans sprinkled throughout security. And, and sometimes I've not detected it until a podcast. 
and somebody's disclosed it. Like, oh, I've known you, I've known you for 10 years and I never even knew that you were in the <laughs> Army or the Air Force or whatever. Yeah. I tried the Air Force, they said no. <laughs> Well, they were yeah. afraid you were going to maybe see what was under the uh, plane parts or the, the, the electronics. Absolutely. It's, it's quite entertaining, actually. So I, I tried for the Air Force because I've always had, you know, flying in my blood. I've always wanted to be a pilot. And um, it's a bit odd sort of to have then gone and funded my own um, pilot's license and finally kind of come back into cyber and aviation through the back door 20 years later. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to, I want to talk about that because that's an interesting vertical, right? People are thinking, uh, often asking me, it's like, oh, so your control system, cybersecurity, so like, you know, gas, electric, you know, grid companies, your power companies, I'm like, sure. One grid of at least, we've organized around 18 different sectors. Energy is only, you know, gas oil is one, electric is one, so there's two, but man, there's a bunch of other ones. And aviation is such a fascinating, uh, a fascinating one all, all by itself. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about that. So what's after, what's after McAfee? And, and how long did you stay? And a lot of times after acquisition, in my own experience, staying a long time is not typical. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of hard, isn't it? Because often, you know, the culture of an organization changes after some MA. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we saw that. Um, yeah, I stayed around for a year uh, and I did some of their work where they do OEM and preloads, which is quite interesting. Um, but it wasn't for me. Yeah, I think um, I, I'd seen the opportunities in, in other areas. So randomly, I went to work for an advertising agency for a while, which was quite a curveball. And I, I think I learned more about how not to do advertising and marketing in that year. <laughs> well, that full circle must be useful in the, I mean, in your role now, not just cyber, it's also the well-being of a company. And that means you wear some other hats. I mean, hats I'm, I, I empathize with and familiar with. So that that stop in your journey must also be helpful to to the role you're in today. Yeah, well, it's funny you talk about many hats with uh, such a rack behind you there. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can see all my military, all my military covers, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like yeah, if you're founding and running a company, as well you know, and I'm sure many of the readers do, you have to wear many hats. Um, one thing I've always been a real fan of, though, is is being able to tell a story. And it's something I learned from Dr. Solomon himself. He was always very good about telling the story of the issue, rather than explaining you know something in in, in protocol depth, going into binary, the ones and the zeros. He'd actually explain it and tell it as a story. And I've always really loved that. It's been great trying to communicate really technically involved concepts, but actually talking through the story rather than going, hey, look how clever I am. No, actually, let's 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 talk about it in ways that my grandmother could understand. It becomes relatable, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that that's that communication's everything, how you, how things are explained. I think there's a lot of frustrated practitioners in our space, especially ones that email and communicate with us a lot, which is like, how do I get my boss or the management or the person, you know, people above me to buy into this? It's like, well, you could say it's their problem that they don't understand, or you can start to really look at the language you're using and the story you're telling and, and the things maybe you shouldn't say because you're trying to you're trying to get them on board. You're trying to get their attention. I mean, it's it's uh, whether it's a customer for a company or whether it's you know there's similar I think probably lessons learned and things in in, in the in that communication journey too. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? So um, over the years, learning to learning to communicate in the way that you know the C-suite wants to wants to understand and yeah. You know, Talking to them in terms that have meaning to them, you know, shareholder value, for example, you know, risk-based decisions. And it can be, I think, quite unhelpful when you know, people in the security industry, the cybersecurity world, talk in, in, in terms of excessive technology. It can be really easy to lose the board and they don't understand. And I think coming to them on their terms is, a, is a really powerful. Very. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I know that at some point, uh, it's been many years, you've been a co-founder, you know, for, I don't know, 
15 years or so of the current company. Between sort of the advertising agency and starting your own company, anything in that, in those interim years that sort of stand yeah. out or, or pivotal or a moment that is sort of informative to who you are today or, or starting or led to starting, uh, you know, co-founding Pentest? So I, I, got a, I got a lucky break, I think. Um, my old boss from McAfee had been out of the business for a little while. And he, he gave me a call and said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I was, I was getting bored of advertising and marketing. So I said, come and have a chat. So as, as most interviews seem to be, they seem to be in a pub over here, over a beer with an old friend. Love it. A pub that's 400 years old, no, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Right, uh, with some very warm beer, as always. <laughs> and then he just said, "Look, you know, I, I'm, I'm working for a startup that does um, that discovers vulnerabilities." Uh, and this is back in 2000, so it's a little while back now. And he said, um, "What we try and do is we we look for security vulnerabilities and we try and help organisations fix them." And this was new to me. Now, obviously, I've been exposed to cyber through antivirus, but this was all new. And all of a sudden, I was my eyes were opened to the opportunity. You know, 24 years ago to look for vulnerabilities, to alert organizations to them. And that's been the start of my journey for the last quarter decade. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's sort of IT focused on the time. We're going to talk about OT here in a minute. But in those years, it would have been it would have been IT, right? Yeah. No, no one touched OT, did it? It just works, right? <laughs> don't touch it. Jen, it's Jen, it doesn't even work anymore, but don't touch it. Windows 3.1 and it works. Yeah. <laughs> And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah. It's yeah. So I then worked with them. We founded a firm in 2002, and uh, we started off doing pen- penetration testing, ethical hacking, if you like. And along the way, we hired a guy who came to us from a, a power company. He said, oh, "I really want to get into penetration testing." I said, "Okay, great." We ended up having a chat with him over a warm beer in a pub, as always, during that interview. And um, he said, "Yeah, I, I work in, in industrial controls." I said, "What's that?" I said, well, yeah, my job's to make sure that um, the power doesn't go out. So, and over a couple of beers, we learned a huge amount. And that guy and I still work together now. And over the last 20 plus years, he's shared everything he knows about OT and industrial controls. We've built a team that understand OT inside out, whether it's in power, water, or even in shipping. Uh, and as a result, we do services around OT cyber for most of the UK utilities and an increasing number of US utilities too. And so that team is 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 uniquely focused on OT. That's what they do. Yep. Yeah. We don't mind if it's if it's a power company. We don't mind if it's it's a water company. We don't mind if it's the insides of a ship, which are all the same. They just float. Yeah, it's all OT. Um, so yeah, there's a team there that goes out and helps assure the security of our industrial control systems. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about aviation. So I know you're a pilot. I have a good authority. You've flown into a challenging airstrip uh, <laughs> uh, high, high in the mountains, and, and you may you might have left by skiing instead of flying. So I mean, you got to tell tell the story. But then let's talk about aviation aviation cybersecurity. Yeah. So uh, I'm a private pilot. I, I was actually going to go commercial back in the late '90s, uh, but unfortunately, the company I was working for at the time went uh, belly up, and that's. Uh, that was my source of flying funding gone for a while. So I went to um, a private pilot. I uh, fly light aircraft, singles and twins um, around Europe, given a chance. But the crazy one was there is uh, an Altiport uh, in a French ski resort called Courcheval. It's quite well known. It's where they held the Winter Olympics in 92. 
And this this runway is on a hill. And like most runways, when you approach them, if it all goes wrong, you just put the power, go around and try again, right? And then you get it right, that's fine. Unfortunately, this one, because they've got a hill and then a mountain behind it. So you get it wrong, you go crash. So it's quite daunting, but uh, I flew down there uh, with some friends, uh, landed quite hard, but you, you taxi up onto the, onto the ramp. And of course it's in France, and I've gone there from the UK and the guy waves you over and then you get out and say, passport, you show them the passport. So then you put your skis on and you ski off the ramp onto the ski. It's brilliant fun. It's, it's wow. on those, those TV shows, 10 most dangerous airports in the world. This one's yeah. number seven. <laughs> ah, awesome. Awesome. I love it. That's a great story. Well, let's talk about uh, safety and security, not of skiing, you know, and staying alive, which you, uh, you, you've say, shown that you can do. But no, the OT, the OT in, in aviation is is interesting, and that's uh, one of the one of the areas that you you work in and have worked in. But that must be near and dear to your heart because it's also your one of your passion areas personally. Yeah, so uh, aviation OT is really interesting. So the systems on board a plane are probably unlike anything else you've ever seen. Uh, so you'll be maybe familiar with real time units, uh, PLCs, and the like, serial comms, and more. The networks on an airplane, certainly older airplanes, are completely different. So they are they're use a completely different set of protocols. They uh, use, you know, the concept of a PLC is probably better described as what we call an LRU or a line replaceable unit. So when you go into the, um, the avionics bay or the EE bay on an airplane, there's a series of racks of units, like things you've never seen before. And one of them might be the radar, one might, one might be a flight data computer, one might control one set of ailerons, one might manage the engines. But it's a series of racks that will kind of look a bit familiar, like an industrial control environment, but they're all it's completely different. Very, very different indeed. But like OT, incredibly robust, incredibly stable, doesn't fall over and lasts forever. But that just like really OT, <laughs> yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's one thing having an industrial control system, I don't know, maybe for our power grid, right? If it falls <laughs> over for a few seconds, it's bad, but the world isn't going to end. People aren't going to die if it goes for right. a few seconds. You're in an airplane, you're in real trouble, right? So that stability requirement is so much higher when you're in the air. But... The really good news is, is those systems are really well isolated. In the way that ROT was isolated from IT for years and years and years, that's still the case on an airplane. There's no, there's no real integration on an airplane. What we call the aircraft control domain, what's you know, the, the flight controls, the uppy downy, lefty righty bit, right? That's completely isolated from any other network on the airplane. So it's not like you can sit in the seat in coach with a laptop and go, hey, I'm hacking the plane. No, it just doesn't work like that. So network segmentation in this instance is yeah. not an argument. Where in maybe in a manufacturing concern, you're like, what? Yeah. It's all connected. But here, no, segmentation is already in play. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's so right. I mean, so there there used to be a one-way data diet. So remember when you sat in the seat, you got the moving map with your airspeed, your ground speed. So that would come from a one-way connection from the flight management system. So that would spit it one way. No, you can't go back the other way. But even now, that's now gone. So that, that integration just isn't there anymore. Not that you could do anything with it back in the day. Now, yeah, so you know, the 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 inflatement system that they're quite interesting actually um, I, I must tell you a story about a 747 uh, that i got access to just just been retired 2020 and uh, we got on board uh, with permission of course never going to fly again and looked at the flight entertainment system control system and it was uh, windows nt351 i'm like oh my gosh when was the last time you saw that right you know we, we see old things in ot environments when was the last time you saw nt351 though right <laughs> Wow! Yeah, <laughs> that, speaks to the, yeah. That, that speaks to the nature of these, all, all these industries, right? This 
this um, the tech refresh of an idea of like when well, we bought new ones this year and like three years from now all this stuff's gone. That's just not how it works over here. Yeah. So that that environment was 24 years old and it flown with passengers two days before. Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, stable, predictable, yeah. solid. But Do you know the funny old. thing? So going back that far is like yeah, there's there's very little value in in retaining you know, pen testing, ethical hacking skills going back that far because stuff gets refreshed. Even in OT, you know, you're not going to see IT systems connected to it that are really that old. Um, so we, we had to like, go back to trying some very old um, uh, ISOs, yeah. try and remind ourselves about all the dependencies that we don't have anymore. Even something as simple as USB, like a lot of the dependencies the tool sets need now, it just weren't there. So it was, it was yeah. great fun trying to have a trip down memory lane. <laughs> oh, man, I can imagine. You know, the, the interesting thing about aviation is uh, that, that came out in our in our event when uh, when your um, one of your um, team members, uh, Joe Dalton, spoke. We had a big, you know, big thing on transportation and the aviation group, the panel, and this, it was discussing way beyond the airplane, right? The airports. And it struck me that the airport, the more they talk, it's like a mini city. It's got fuel and it's got electricity and it's got access control and it's got, whoa, it's got all the industries within it. it may, maybe literally all of them. I've never really looked at all 18 that we, we track across. And that in itself, with all these different stakeholders, it's not like one homogenous company and you know employees of that company. All these different stakeholders coming and going and having these areas of crossover responsibility. That for for aviation cybersecurity, that must be uh, a lot to do there. So I'm using it. The airplane is actually relatively easy to keep secure. The airports are now the match altogether. Yeah, that's the trouble, and everyone hears about it when there's a problem with an airport or an, an airline, an air operator. Um, and it's always really weird things that cause those outages. Something as simple as the docking display. So when you when your airplane's coming up into it wants to dock, there's a there's a little display there that tells the pilot how much more to come forward and back, right? So they always line it up. It's always the right computer, and that's saved loads of um, money from employing people on the ramps with their batons going up that. Those systems go down. You haven't got enough people with batons anymore because they don't have enough people with batons anymore because they've all been laid off because they've got computers now. So it's surprising how really simple things can actually lead to airport outages. I, I remember another funny one: the uh, flight display board. So you know which gate to go to. And uh, a large airport said, "Look, can you can you come and check over our systems?" And we got to the point. So, hang on, we found a vulnerability in your flight displays. No, oh, believe you. Said, so, "Okay, all right." So. Would you give us permission to pop up our own flight on your display boards? So one of the largest airports in the UK, we've got our own flight, the PTP party flights. There's a screenshot that the customer lets us take us for a photograph on our website of us injecting our own flights. Of course, that was proving a point. But from there, we could have mixed up any gate through any terminal. Yeah. Now, can you imagine the chaos that would have caused? No flights would have gone that day because no, no passengers would be in the right place. Yeah. So something as simple as one display system could stop airplanes moving. Yeah, and, and you apply the right friction to one of those larger, largest airports in the world. I mean, here in Atlanta, I think we might be still might be the largest traffic per, per year. Yeah. You, you put little friction in the right points, and it's a colossal chain effect. It's not like oh, five minute delay. It, it compounds right very quickly, and all of a sudden, all these things that'd be chaos, and and not loss of life in that scenario, but loss of money. And lots of loss of reputation and angry customers, for sure, that could cascade into, into a lot of stuff, including maybe even legal response. I mean, I think that's 
people talk about reputation damage. It's like, you know, are you talking about people losing their life from this particular security risk? I'm like, well, those exist. And some of them are realistic and some are not. But there's a whole lot of other risks that are entirely realistic, short of, you know, well, well sort of loss of life, but still quite significant. Yeah. Now, so baggage systems are really interesting, too, because they're almost invariably um, industrial controllers up there. Yeah, the same sort of PLCs that we'll see. Yeah. yeah. And we had a problem when Heathrow's Terminal 5 opened up for the first time oh, over a decade ago. And some of the baggage systems weren't right. They hadn't commissioned them properly. I don't know what quite went wrong. But there were weeks of just bags not going to the right place. That's piled up in warehouses. It just went so badly wrong because the system didn't play ball. So yeah. it's amazing how yeah, even OT can get involved. Yeah. So what what kind of things as you look to you know to the to the future or the current state of the union today? What, what excites you or or keeps you up at night? I mean, either either way, it could be positive or or on the challenging side of things. So one of the areas that that worries me on the industrial control side of things is starting to see cloud management platforms pop up. You know, sure. back in the day, you know, we we kept our OT are physically isolated behind locked cabinets. And for obvious reasons, yeah, we want to do predictive maintenance. We want to make it easy to you know, remotely administrate systems. That's going to save costs and make us more efficient, right? Then I start to see the cloud getting involved. And I've seen a number of PLC vendors starting to bring together cloud management platforms. Yep. And that brings in another area of expertise that we have around, particularly APIs. So those APIs that the PLCs need to talk over cellular data or Wi-Fi into the cloud for you then to administrate them remotely. And we found bugs in recent months, which gave us the ability to compromise certain vendors' cloud platforms. So you could just administrate any PLC you wanted to, which was worrying. Yeah, so we're organizations rushing, vendors rushing a bit too fast, who maybe don't have too much expertise in doing the cloud right, but trying to offer benefits to their customers so they can save money in terms of administration, but not quite getting the cybersecurity right along the way. Yeah, I, I am seeing cloud creeping up in so many conversations. And I love the meme floating around, you know, Facebook, they're like, there's no such thing as a cloud. It's someone else's computer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, this, this concept, and I've sat in some, some meetings that that'll sort of the bell went off for me was we need to talk about how to do this and that, that some of this is going to happen. And uh, without wasting any time today, because I've told the story, you know, probably too many times, but there's one particular lecture that I sat in by a, a large manufacturing executive. And he talked about the dollars that would be saved across all these turbines, you know, by the data going up to their lake, the data lake, and what they had analytically, and then what they could send data back and attenuate the turbine. So man the middle attack possible, because stuff's going back. It wasn't just analytics, it was data going back and making changes. But then he talked about the business, the, the dollars involved. And when and 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 um, and so I'm telling the story anyway, but it's like five years ago, it was very powerful to me because I said, wow, that much money at stake, taking that all is true, then that means that is where that's going to go. But man, oh man, how this is going to be done, how it can be architected. There were a lot of security discussions that day. And what I heard the people far superior in their security knowledge than me and technical knowledge was that that was bad or wrong. Like you're missing the point. We got to get in the time of discussion around architecture and how the business is going to move in that direction. There was too much money. Again, taking it granted, it was millions and millions of dollars for one customer just by being able to make those adjustments real time all the time. It's really powerful, isn't it? It's, and we cannot stop progress. You know, progress is, is right. You know, it, it's economies, it's efficiencies, it's saving consumers money, particularly when we're running utilities. We've just got to remember to have that, that discussion at the same time. And one thing I really encourage organizations to do when they're 
buying, when they're procuring new new systems, new cloud platforms, is help your procurement teams put in contractual language so there's liability for cyber in there. Otherwise, you don't have recourse, right? Now, if you make your vendors sign up to certain cybersecurity standards, if it all goes wrong, you've got legal comeback. And when it goes wrong in OT, it goes wrong in a big way with lots of dollars on the end, right? That, that, you're, you're mentioning something very important there, which is it's there's different things that have to be done here. One is to show, you know, reaching 100% security, not possible, but showing due diligence, showing proper due care. If you can't do that, yeah, I think the liabilities are going to get higher and higher for senior executives. Um, I mean, that's that's the evidence. And uh, you know, here in the United States um, now that with FDA, medical devices, there's now penalties due to cybersecurity issues. Um, I haven't peeled that apart. we got a great speaker on it coming up, uh, Billy Rios, who knows that industry quite well. But that's the beginnings of like, okay, there's going to be financial, there's going to be liability here. And um, it's, you're right. If you don't, if you don't show, or at least at this level, you can't prove we got here or you can't guarantee to be, you know, at some, let's say hundred percent, you know, I don't even know where you, where anybody can get, but you certainly can be, here's what we've done. We're doing, we're doing as well as our peers or better than our peers are doing. You often find vendors are a bit more responsive when you're trying to close a contract with them, right? Um, often that's when they're they're listening. It's when they're most attentive. It's yeah. when their supply chain evidence is going to be most likely to be um, forthcoming because it's going to help them win that contract. So that's the point in my mind where we should be making sure we've got those procurement terms and standards yeah. that they contract to. So we've got comeback. You, you, you've nailed another important theme there. That's 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 big because everybody that I know at uh, OEMs and you know the equipment manufacturers says between you and me. Customers are going to be move our needle. They've got to demand that we do more, that we raise our bar. I mean, we're doing. I mean, some of these people are employed at these companies to help product security, and and there's teams, but they they'll say over a beer, a warm beer, or a cold beer, uh, they'll say it's got to come from the customer. The customer has to make more demands of us. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. We've we've had some some really variable experiences disclosing vulnerabilities to industrial control system vendors. Uh, one I want to call out as being really good was actually Siemens. Now, of course, I think they had a lot of attention back in the day with the Stuxnet incident. But we've since found some vulnerabilities to some of their systems. And i got to say, most vendors we disclose bugs to, you just get stonewalled. But Siemens were actually really good. Uh, they, they, they acknowledged within two hours. They asked more information within two days. Um, they kept us updated without us pushing once a week. Um, they asked for a little bit of extra time because it just it turned out that the bug was affecting a lot more systems than we realized. And then they fixed it and they coordinated disclosure. So, yeah, there's some really good examples of great OTOEMs out there. Yeah. It wasn't as good as that. <laughs> that, that. That grading, I think, is creeping up, but obviously yeah. it's variable per company. And so it's great to hear um, your, your feedback on them. And, and there are others that are, I think, in that, that camp. I hear it from researchers all the time. And, uh, and and their stories over the last 10 years, and it is getting better. They're kind of like, oh, we should collaborate with these researchers. And I mean, researchers need to be responsible too. Responsible disclosure is big. But if you get symbiosis, like, okay, we respect that you're part of helping us out. But you're right. You used to be closed doors, ignored. I mean, not a strategy at all. Um, but now, you know, that's great to hear that they're they're receptive to you guys discovering discovering things. I mean, that, what, what an awesome opportunity for them. They're not... You don't work for them. You're giving them value. But sometimes it's hard, isn't it? Vulnerability disclosure yeah. is, is a difficult thing because someone that you don't know is trying to approach you and tell you that 
your baby, the thing that you That's built, that you invested blood, sweat, and tears in, and dollars, yeah, isn't isn't perfect. It's a hard thing to hear that your baby isn't perfect, right? Yeah. It's, so it's 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 over the years, I really started to understand sort of some some of those personal, people, and cultural challenges around doing vulnerability disclosure to the point where I was invited to contribute to uh, uh, the board of CV at MITRE. So I sat on the board, the CV board, for a little while trying to bring some of the experience of vulnerability disclosure we've had over the years. And that, that was really powerful, actually. I, 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 it was great to be recognized for a lot of the work that we've done trying to do responsible ethical disclosure for yeah. so many organizations. Yeah, that's that's awesome. To see the inner workings of all that is, is, is probably was quite, quite interesting. Uh, the other side of your work, like, okay, so what happens when somebody like me or our organization comes up with one of these things? How does, how does the CVE machine work? And yeah, that, that's... It's yeah. people take, take it for granted. It's like, isn't it just like, you know, you pick up a phone and it ends up in a spreadsheet. You know, eh, there's Not a lot quite. of parts. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's amazing actually seeing the acceleration and the rate of disclosures in, increasing as we've seen bug bounty platforms yeah. come along. Right. And then the challenges of the OEMs trying to deal with the, the, the enormous rush of, of vulnerabilities that that's created. It's, it's become a real challenge. With them, you, you know, I say, hey, you're doing them a favor, and they're not paying, you know, unless a bug bounty program aside, they're not paying for some of this. It's being it's be given as a gift. It is a gift for the, it, it's got a double edged, you know, sort of gift in that dealing with all this is not fun, but ignorance is not bliss. So just saying, if we didn't know, that's somehow better. I think that's what's proving to be not safe, right? And that's that's the thing they can't do anymore. The ignorance is not bliss. If somebody has discovered something, you're going to need to have an apparatus, part of your organization that's ready to to work with that. I mean, you don't really have any choice. I, 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 one of the, uh, the, the the comments that grates me sometimes is you'll often see an organization that doesn't deal particularly well with vulnerability disclosure. Then maybe it'll end up in the press down the line. And they'll always be that come, we take the security of our customers' data very seriously, but only when the, uh, our reputation is threatened, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I find that a real shame that you know the organization could actually have embraced the researcher and engaged with them. And there's some wonderful examples. Boeing, we, we disclosed vulnerabilities to Boeing, who were stunningly good. You know, they were up there with Siemens in terms of the way they they listened, um, engaged, yeah. acted. And it and it was wonderful. In fact, Boeing asked us to uh, join them on stage at RSA last year to talk about vulnerability disclosure. So that was a real, a real tick. But yet most of the time. Trying to get organizations to listen is so hard. Yeah, yeah, but well, what are you excited about? You know, we have a lot of people, you know, if you do a little future gazing here as we get near the end of our time together, I, I think it's I always like to see what you guys are thinking about. You know, we have a lot of entry. Well, we have a lot of people just coming in from different things, coming from the military or joining this industry. And they're like, you know, where should I focus in a particular area? And they get all the advice about get the basics, understand how networks, you know, how that works. Uh, and it all makes sense. But I think there's there's some validity to it'd be fun to be where the puck, the Wayne Gretzky quote, it'd be fun to be where the puck's going to be five years from now. So what what are you excited about in the future? Where do you think that the earlier entries in our uh, people in our marketplace might start to learn and bone up and join working groups to be to be to make themselves valuable tomorrow? So I'm going to bring this one back to your your wheelhouse because an area that I think. Fascinating, and uh, we've been looking at for a little while. This is around maritime cyber. We've been asked over the last couple of years by a number of cruise ship operators to come and have a look at their vessels. Um, we know our way around OT. We know our way around ships. Randomly, one of my colleagues was used to be a ship's captain many years ago. Ah, when you look at a cruise ship, 
you couldn't imagine a more interesting and complicated environment because you've got the engines, the OT, you've got navigation, you've got safety, fire systems, you've got elevators, you've got a casino, you've got a hotel, you've got entertainment, you've got restaurants, you've got the whole, you've got one of everything in one floating vessel. And that was a big skill shortage in the maritime cyberspace right now. So if anyone out there with an interest in OT is looking for a new sector to, to take interest in, I'd go and have a look at maritime. There's a bunch of new regulations coming. So uh, July next year, the oh, it's the, the International Association of Classification Societies is putting in some regulation to make maritime cyber mandatory for new build vessels. And that means if they don't comply, they're not insured, so they can't sell. So if any of your viewers are thinking about the next big interesting place to take their OT skills, I could go maritime. It's really, really interesting. Um, it's a bit like shooting fish in a barrel for us because there's so much to have a go at. Uh, and you end up doing really weird things. And I'll give you one example. On one cruise ship a little while ago, and on board, they had a golf simulator. So when you're away from the golf course for a couple of weeks on the cruise ship, you want to practice, you have a go at the golf, right? Great, you know, simulator, have a go. And from that golf simulator, we discovered a bunch of um, mistakes had been made with the network segregation. And we ended up being able to take control of the steerable azipods. So cruise ships, they often have like these steerable propellers, right? And from the golf simulator, we hopped through the ITs, the segregation into the OT environment, and they could then send commands to make the ship steer, which would override what the captain was doing. It's a really, really interesting space. So I strongly encourage your, your, your listeners to go and uh, upskill, transfer those skills into maritime, given a chance. That's awesome. That is a great story to end on and, and, and a cool a cool um, sort of sub-vertical you know, within transportation. That's another subdivision, right? And there's rails and there's like, I, I was talking to him about, about cars and he said, you know, and trucking's different. He said, here's what's going on in trucking. He said, they're related. But it's different. The long haul trucks that would be automated, and so it's it's different than the consumer cars that you're you and I are talking about today. So it's like all these can be further subdivided into these interesting uh, things. So that's I, I would have described transportation as an interesting area, like you just did. And you dove right into the intricacies of maritime and how much growth. And I heard there was a there was a speaker around the same time that we're having our transportation series, and he was talking about what's going to happen that's going to explode in maritime is the cheapness of connectivity. It's happening right now. It's diving like 10,000 a month to have the Inmarsat or whatever. And now yeah. through this new constellation, you know, uh, you can get, you know, it's like, it's less than 10% that cost. And uh, and so that people can connect and, and owners can manage this or from afar or do this from afar. They're going to want all those features, the same stuff we're talking about for every other vertical. They want those features, but there's consequences to those features. And so, yeah, it sounds like an exciting area. Yeah, the, the rate of catch-up. So, you know, ships used to be isolated, right? When you're at sea, you know, maybe, maybe you had a satlone, and it was so expensive. But now with Vsat and now um, Starlink, it's so cheap. Yeah. But yeah. all these ships that were really safe and secure because they were isolated at sea have now become really exposed. And the, the, the level of technical debt is, is absolutely stunning. It makes utilities look uh, at the bleeding edge by comparison. All right. Well, I think that's a good uh, inspirational note. Uh, so, Ken, we have come to the time uh, in, in the podcast where I, I have been in the habit now for I don't know, 80 of the 105 episodes I've done, I think, uh, we, we've ended with the Pivot questionnaire. So I don't know if you're familiar with Inside the Actor Studio, a show that it, it may still be running. I really didn't look it up. But I, I watched it during the era of James Lipton as the host, and he has passed on. 
but he used this question from a French show before that. So this is probably 50 year old questionnaire and I haven't changed it. I, I use it exactly the way he did it, and I'm assuming the way they did it in the original show. So if you're up for it, we'll end with the uh, Pavot questionnaire. Let's go for it. All right. What is your favorite word? Okay, my favorite word is vulnerability, but for two reasons. Obviously, I love finding vulnerabilities, disclosing and getting them fixed. But I also think vulnerability in terms of a, a, a personal um, view, actually expressing vulnerability is really important as part of a, an individual and also a company culture. What is your least favorite word? <laughs> Disclosure. Because <laughs> it's always painful. <laughs> what turns you on, either creatively, spiritually or emotionally? So what fascinates me is new technologies new things to have a go at, new things to find bugs in. Right now, for example, I'm looking at smart ski tech, and it's, again, just fascinating, the crazy stuff you find. Everywhere. Amazing. Uh, what turns you off? Vendors that don't listen. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? I'm not going to share that right now. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of silence. There you go. What sound or noise do you hate? Pointless chatter. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would love to be a commercial pilot. And what profession would you not like to do? Uh, I'm done with working in restaurants. <laughs> and if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, we take the security of your data very seriously. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm just wrapping up with Ken Monroe, uh, CEO, uh, co-founder of Pentest Partners. It's been a lively and interesting conversation. Thank you for uh, not only taking the time, but also bringing some great, uh, some great stories. And uh, I look forward to sharing a, a warm beer near Bletchley Park with you sometime. So it's uh, you, you live near one of my bucket list items. I will I'll let you know when I'm going to make that check that one off. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. Thank you for all your years of service to, to industry. And we all we all benefit from that. Thanks for coming on the show. Take care. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.